Well, I'm really excited about my new book, Creation and Redemption, Finding Your Place in a Fallen World, which releases here this next week. Um, it's actually kind of funny because when I uh, first uh, started writing this book three years ago, I uh, didn't set out to write this book. Um, in fact, when I first sat down at my computer to work on a book, I was working on another book, and uh, God had been speaking to me about writing for some time, and it was really something that I wanted to do. Um, and I really felt a sense of uh, urgency, for lack of a better word, on it. That, you know, this isn't something that I just want to do someday. It's not just some far-off dream when I'm an old man. Like, this is something that I want to give my life to. It's really pressing in and finding um, the heart of God for a generation and communicating uh, those words on His behalf to people. And so I started writing this book on the grace of God. Um, it was a topic that had significantly impacted my life. Uh, you see, I grew up in a really religious, um, legalistic church background. And um, it was actually in that place where I got uh, saved and had an encounter with the Lord. Um, and it was amazing. Uh, the problem was that I then was in this um, system that was all about uh, working to earn God's favor and to, to have a place um, in his creation, in the world, and uh, it wasn't too good for me, and um, I ended up in this really unhealthy cycle of uh, trying to please God and constantly feeling like I didn't measure up, that I wasn't enough, that he was mad at me, and I had this encounter with the wild, reckless, extravagant grace of God, and I began to discover the heart of the Father, and it changed everything for me. And that transformation was actually something that was ongoing. It didn't just happen all overnight. You know, God didn't just remove all these layers of bad theology in an instant. But I went on this journey with him where I, I began to discover things that were true. And I, as I was discovering things that were true about God and about myself, I was letting go of all these other things that I'd believed along the way. Because, you know, life has a way of telling us sometimes that we're not enough, or that if we've experienced bad things, that it's always going to be this way. And along the way, I found out that it's, it's very easy for us to fall into believing lies about ourselves and about God. And so as we discover truth, as we discover more of who God is, part of that learning process actually has to do with unlearning uh, bad theology that we've picked up along the way. And so that actually should be part of our Christian walk. As we grow in our relationship with God, not only should we be diving deeper into the depths of who He is, but we should be unlearning and letting go of things that we've picked up along the way that create less than true pictures of who God is. And you know, the, uh, the whole Bible is really, if you think about it, it's a story that God creates the first family, Adam and Eve, and he creates them in his, in his image according to his likeness. They're in perfect relationship with him. They're in unbroken communion with the Father. And that doesn't last very long. Um, in fact, Adam and Eve, they're put in the garden. And they have, there's these, these two trees. There's the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And God only gave them one rule. He says, you know, sometimes we think in the garden... You know, Adam and Eve had limited options. You know, there was all this stuff you can't do. You know, we even see it today, like, God's the red light God, that He doesn't want you doing anything fun, that the light's always red until He turns it green. Um, and that God just doesn't want us to enjoy life, and that's simply not true. And so, Adam and Eve, there's all these trees in the garden, and God says one thing, kind of peculiar. He says, eat from the tree of life. But this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shouldn't eat it, because the day that you do, you'll die. And it's kind of weird. It's like, what? God, why, why would you put this tree in the garden that can kill your kids? And, you know, it's interesting, because even, even in the beginning, when it's just Adam and Eve and God, you know, God never wanted us to have to love Him. You know, real love isn't love unless it's something that you choose, if there's, unless there's another option. Unless there's other choices, there's other options out there, and you know, you decide, you know what, I don't want any of these other things. This is the thing that I want. And that's what God wants us to do, is in the middle of all the stuff of life, all the other things that we can put our trust in, all the other things we can put our hope in, He wants us to put everything on Him and say, you're it, you're the one. I've found the one who my heart loves. And so, <laughs> Adam and Eve are in this garden. They're in an unbroken relationship with the Father. They're freely partaking of life. 
You know, it says that the, um, the tree was a tree of life in Genesis. And you know, we, uh, we know what trees look like. You know, my friend Bob Hamp says, uh, unless you're from West Texas, you know what trees look like. And he says that because in West Texas we don't have any trees. <laughs> but, you know, we've seen trees that contain apples, trees that contain oranges, um, trees that contain all different kinds of fruit and flowers and uh, leaves, all different kinds of trees. But <laughs> have you ever seen a tree that grows life? You know, sometimes it's so easy to just read through that scripture without really thinking about it. You know, it's so easy to just brush past it because, okay, I've heard that a thousand times, whatever. But when we really stop and think about it, when we really meditate on the scriptures, we see, wait a minute, I think there's more going on here than meets the eye. And so life is more than just about being alive. It has something to do with being in that place of unbroken communion with the Father, that place of shalom, of perfect peace, where nothing is broken and nothing is missing, and we're functioning exactly how God created us to function. You know, I was, uh, I was in Montana a couple years ago uh, with one of my friends, and uh, she had her grandkids over for the weekend, and I was helping her do some shopping, and uh, one of the uh, grandkids came up to... Uh, my friend Leanne in Costco, and he says, um, Grandma, do we know ourselves? And <laughs> it's kind of funny sometimes how kids ask the most powerful questions. He says, do we know ourselves? <laughs> like, what kind of question is that even? But it's something so deep and so profound. And her response to him is, she goes, you know, um, often we, we don't know ourselves, but we know that God knows us, and we're learning a little bit more about ourselves with each and every passing day. Have you ever um, had that moment in your life where you realize, where, where something happens, you do something, you accomplish something, and you surprise yourself? Like, it's a, it's a moment, not just where something vain, like you achieve something material or something like that, but Something where just this goodness comes out of you. You know, sometimes we like to hate on humanity and say there's nothing good in us. We're all just a bunch of worms. We're all sick. Without God, we're nothing. But even apart from God, even apart from relationship with Christ, each one of us were made in His image according to His likeness. And what that means is that God God's nature is hardwired into our DNA. It's hardwired into the very core, into the very fabric, into the very fibers of our being. The very essence of who we are is dripping with the nature of God and who He is. And yes, there's some other junk in there. There's sin that's kind of corrupted and tried to, um, to kind of keep the image of God from shining through. But every once in a while it breaks through and we have these moments where we just go, Oh, I didn't know that was in me, you know, and um, <laughs> got kind of off track here, but that was that was a good tangent to get off track on. Um, <laughs> so we're we're learning more and more about ourselves with each and every day. Um, and yeah, oh, Holy Spirit, <laughs> what do you want to say? What do you want to say, God? You know, sometimes when I lose my train of thought like that, I just, uh, I think maybe it's because God's wanting to, to do something else. <laughs> I'm just getting hit up here with wave after wave of his love washing over me. God, I just pray over each person in this room right now, over each person listening to this, God that you would just wash over them with your love. That your love would captivate their hearts, God, all of their days. That you would surround them with the fullness of everything that you are. That you would never let them go. God, I pray that they would never be able to escape this reckless, wild, extravagant love that you've lavished upon all of us as your deeply loved children. So let's go back to the garden. Um, Adam and Eve are in this garden, and 
God says you can take of life freely. You know? And it's everything you need. It's, it's everything as you were designed to function. Can you imagine? You know, there's a scripture in First John that says, Now we are children of God, and it is not yet revealed what we shall be. But we know when we see him, we will become like him because we will see him as, we, as he is. So actually, what that verse is saying is right now, we don't even, even with all of the understanding we have about God in the Bible, there's so much more of God that cannot fit within the confines of these letters and these poems and these stories that have been collected by the apostles and the prophets and Paul and John and so many others. Um, all of this stuff is God. All scripture is God-breathed. But God is so deep and so rich and so full that he can't be fit within the confines of this book. In fact, at the end of the Gospel of John, it says, and this is referring to Jesus' three years of ministry, just three years, that Jesus did many other things as well. If all of them were recorded, I suppose not even all the books in the world could contain them. So that's saying that Jesus' three years on earth, were so the things that he did were so rich and were so profound and were so full of the very nature of heaven that if they were written down, not all the books in the world could contain them. There's so much to record. And what does that tell us about God that's infinite, that's outside of time? <laughs> you know, he's been around a lot more than just three years. And so God is, God is so, just the very nature of who he is is so deep and so rich. And there's so much more of him that's always waiting to be discovered. And Jesus, you're so good. Um, and so Adam and Eve had the opportunity to partake of that, of the fullness of God. You know, it says in the, in the, in the epistles, Paul says, or I believe it's Peter, that we are, through the blood of Jesus Christ, we're escaping the corruption of the sinful world, and we've actually become participants. We've become partakers in the divine nature of God. And if that's us now, even before Jesus has returned and set all things right, you know, yes, we're redeemed, we're restored to God, but yet we're still living in this broken world that's being put back together, but it's not fully put back together. If we're already participants in the divine nature, what's going to happen when we get back to that place where we're able to take of the tree of life again? But let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. Um, I think the point I'm trying to get across is that the, the life of God is so rich and so deep. And so God, Adam and Eve, when they were in the garden, all they knew was life. Because there's this other tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And so when Adam and Eve chose to disconnect from God as their source of life and eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, they exchanged the life of God for death. They exchanged the truth for a lie. And we've been doing the same thing ever since. Because what was? It's the tree of knowledge of good and evil. You know, what's the great enemy of the gospel of grace and the reality of the kingdom? It's religion. You know, what often is religion? It's this finger-pointing moralism that says, I know what's good and I know what's evil and I know who's in and I know who's out. And so, God never designed us to live in a world where we would have to choose constantly, is this good or is this evil? Is this good or is this evil? He never created us to have to choose between those two things. He only created us to know his life in a world where evil and death don't even exist. Um, <laughs> but we've come a long way since we've uh, made that journey east of Eden, haven't we? And so Adam and Eve, they take of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They exchange life for death. They set the human race on this trajectory towards... Um, towards humanism and self-sufficiency and shame and blame and control and all these other things. 
they basically set humanity on a course that says, you know what, I can do life without God. I don't need the life of God because I will create my own life. I will create my own future. I will create my own destiny. I will create my own meaning and purpose in this world apart from God. And it's a lie. Because plain and simple, all the knowledge in the world cannot get you to the life of God pulsing through your veins. You know, just recently I was at a Harvard University up in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And um, I really love New England. There's something about it that really intrigues me. It's, you know, one of the most unchurched, ungospelized, if that's a word, uh, regions of our country. But it, it didn't used to be. It used to actually be the place where many great revivals happened in America. And uh, Harvard University, one of the Ivy League schools... Um, Actually, all the Ivy League schools were originally founded as Christian institutions to learn more about the beauty of who God is. And I actually, um, I'm not against being an intellectual or pursuing wisdom. You know, if we read Proverbs, you know, it says, above all else, get wisdom, get understanding. But there's a difference between the wisdom and understanding that comes from God that enables us to reconnect to His life and that enables us to live the way of Christ in a world gone crazy wrong. There's a difference between that wisdom and the wisdom of man that says, I don't need God, I'm self-sufficient, I've got this. And so Harvard University um, was founded as this Christian organization. There were 13 churches around um, Harvard Square. And um, it was a great place of revival and the gospel was preached and... Um, then one day there was this man who uh, started introducing this new humanistic uh, ideology into the mix. And he started to kind of leaven in this idea that, you know, maybe we don't need God after all. Maybe we can obtain to this level of wisdom and intellect without the power of the Holy Spirit. And you know, as it says in Galatians, a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. And that verse actually doesn't refer to having an unsaved friend, as many of us might have been taught in our youth groups. Um, actually, what it talks about is, it talks about, it's specifically referring to false doctrine. That when you have good doctrine, doctrine and solid truth of who God is, and that little lie, that little distortion creeps in, it's actually enough to work its way through all of your theology and spoil the whole thing. And that's what happened for these 13 churches around Harvard Square. In fact, they, they all um, subscribed to this new ideology, and these uh, Christian churches actually ended up becoming Unitarian Universalist churches. And that's what they still are today. And in fact, uh, the Harvard logo was three books, um, and it was this phrase in Latin, and um, I don't have it written down in my notes exactly what it is, but you can find out about it on the internet. Um, I promise I'm giving you good theology, I think. <laughs> um, there were these three books on the Harvard logo, and two of the books were open, you know, representing the wisdom and the knowledge that you can acquire. But there was one book that was shut, and the Latin word on that book referred to the Holy Spirit. And what it was actually saying was that even though we believe that you can acquire knowledge and insight and wisdom, there is a certain type of knowledge, a certain measure of wisdom that is only accessible through the Holy Spirit, that man cannot obtain all knowledge without the power of God. And that's the way it was at Harvard University. But when this new humanistic movement started sweeping through, um, this group of students actually took rocks and hurled them at the third, third uh, book that was carved in the stone above the gates of the square to where they actually broke the book open. And basically what it was doing, it's kind of like a giant middle finger in the face of God to say, you know what, we don't need you. We can obtain this on our own. And that's the same attitude that Adam and Eve had when they exchanged life for death. Like I said, we've been doing the same thing ever since. And so the, the logo of Harvard University actually ended up being changed 
to where today all three of the books are open, representing that through man's knowledge and intellect, you can acquire all knowledge, all wisdom, all depth of insight, and that we don't need God. And it's just a picture of what's been happening since Eden, you know? <laughs> um, and God never created us to live that way. <laughs> he created us to draw our life from Him. That's why my book is called Creation and Redemption. Um, you know, like I said, I started out writing this book about grace, and um, a little while in, things didn't work out too well, and I, <coughs> excuse me, I ended up scrapping the book and uh, started working on another book. It was actually Christmas 2011, and I was going through kind of a dark time in my life as I was kind of just trying to figure things out and figure out God, figure out life, you know. Um, I just graduated from high school. And I was just trying to figure it out, you know. Um, and I, I, I abandoned that book and I started writing this new book and I called it Confessions of a Struggling Evangelical. Which is a, a really dumb title, I know. Um, thank God that book never went to print. Um, that book actually was just kind of like a diary. That was a very raw, transparent account of... Um, this is where my life sat, and this is what I know about God, but here's all the crap I'm dealing with it in the middle of it. You know, I found myself stuck between creation and redemption, um, and I'll unpack what that means here in a minute. And that, the manuscript for that book actually ended up within a couple um, weeks after the beginning of 2012 becoming creation and redemption. And so the first few chapters of the book... Um, Really, chapters two through uh, four are uh, kind of that original manuscript from uh, Confessions of a Struggling Evangelical. And actually, in my opinion, they're some of the worst chapters in the book. <laughs> I'm a professional writer, and so, of course, I know that you've kind of got to have that hook that gets people in the first part of your book or else they won't want to keep reading. And so I, uh, I wrote a new first chapter in the beginning that I felt really kind of baited that hook with um, giving readers a little bit of a taste of the life of God in the middle of a world that's gone crazy wrong. And then it's like, it just kind of whets your appetite for wanting the kingdom, for wanting things to be set right, for wanting, longing for the restoration of all things. Um, it was actually, it felt like after I'd uh, written that part of the text, it felt like as Dr. Walter Brueggemann would say, I'd stumbled upon the words from elsewhere. You know, um, if you're a preacher, you maybe, uh, you probably definitely know, you know, when you say something and you just go, man, that was good. And not in a way where you're being arrogant or anything like that, but it's just you tapped into a word from elsewhere and the spirit for a minute took over. And in that moment where you're channeling the Spirit, He's able to speak something that's so much deeper, that's so much richer than anything that you could come up with on your own. And that's kind of what happened with the first chapter of my book. Um, and so, then chapters 2 through uh, two, 3 and 4 are a little bit rough because they're the original manuscript, uh, albeit tailored a little bit from the uh, Confessions book. And, you know, part of me even wanted, as I was preparing the book for publication, a part of me wanted to cut those chapters out. Because I was like, man, these aren't even very well written. They're mostly dark. I talk about being depressed. This is a Christian book. It needs to be happy. We can't talk about depression. Man, people don't want to hear about that stuff. <coughs> even though it's something I believe we need to talk about, right? Because we all have those dark days where we're like, okay, God, what are you doing? What's going on? I'm kind of freaking out here. Um, we all have those moments where we wonder, okay, God, do you, do you got this? Um, we just don't always like to admit it because sometimes we think we're the only ones with doubts. Sometimes we think we're the only Christian with issues. You know, I used to think I was the only Christian with issues, and now I've realized that we all have our own struggles. You know, and we're all on this journey toward um, finding God and walking in the way of the kingdom together. And he's showing us who we are along the way, and it's so beautiful. Um, 
But anyway, what creation refers to in, in the book is uh, the beginning of the story. When everything was unbroken. When you just move through life fully connected to God, you never had those thoughts, am I accepted? Am I loved? Do I really matter? Is the world really a better place because I exist? You know, <laughs> we didn't have any of those voices of doubt in the beginning. Because when the serpent, when the devil entered the narrative in Genesis 3, before Adam and Eve had just lived with the voice of God, but all of a sudden this new voice entered the narrative and it, it tried to convince them that God was holding out on them. That there was something more that they can obtain if they would just reach for knowledge and give up life. And that's the same thing that we often run from God because we think, oh, what if there's more out there that I can obtain outside of Him? <laughs> when really all along in the depths of our hearts we know, what else have I but you? There's no one else that I desire but you, God, as David said. And so, that's what creation is. It's the world functioning as it was designed. And redemption, because unfortunately, in the first portion of the story, things go terribly wrong, and then in the middle of the story, things keep going wrong. But the crazy thing is, is as people of the cross, well, we don't always know what the end, what the middle of the story is going to hold. We know the end of the story. We know that in the end of the story. You know, sometimes we say, we know what happens in the end, God wins. Well, it's true that God wins, but it's, it's about so much more than just God wins. Like, at the end of the story, we all win. Because everything is made new. Even the earth itself wins because the planet is restored. You know, it says in Romans 8, I believe it is when it's talking about all of creation groans for the sons and daughters of God to be revealed. And then it says, for the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly. But until that day when Jesus returns and makes all things right. Literally, the earth itself is groaning. It's groaning. It's, it's longing. And it's, it's interesting. It doesn't say it's longing for God to come back and defeat the Antichrist and rapture us all out of here. It says all of creation is groaning and longing, whatever word you want to use, for the sons and daughters of God to be revealed. That's right. All of creation is longing for you, for you, for you, for you to rise up and step into your destiny as an image bearer of God, as sons and daughters of the kingdom of light, the kingdom prepared for us to walk in before the foundation of the world. All of creation is longing for us to step in to the reality of how we were designed to function. And so that's what redemption is about. Redemption is about Revelation 21 and 22, about getting back to that place where God restores all things. But in the meantime, we're between the story. We're living between creation and redemption. We're living between the advents of Christ. You know, if you um, understand theology, you know there's, there's two advents or two comings of Christ. There's the first advent when Jesus was born as a baby. And there's right before he, you know, after he's crucified, he rises again, and he sends the right hand of the Father. He promised to come again. We have the second advent that's promised that hasn't happened yet. Because through Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross, he defeated and disarmed the powers of darkness. He took away all their power, all their authority, and he gave it to us as his sons and daughters. He gave it to Jesus, and then Jesus gives it to us as, you know, we're co-heirs with Christ and stuff. Um... And so, one of the questions I pose very early on in the book is, 
Why is the devil still at work if his works are destroyed? Because it says, now the ruler of this world is judged. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And when I am lifted up unto the earth, I will draw all men unto me. And he says the enemy is fully defeated. Not fully defeated at the second advent. He's fully defeated now. (laughs) And so because we were given this beautiful and terrible thing called free will, we still have the opportunity, just as in the beginning, there's always another way. We have the opportunity to partner with the kingdom of light or we can partner with the kingdom of darkness. And which kingdom we choose to partner with, which kingdom we choose to be most aware of, will affect where the course of our lives take us. (coughs) And so that's why we need to choose light. We need to choose life. We need to choose God. Excuse me. some water here. Um, and so, that's what redemption's about. And that's what we're moving toward. That's what we're all on the trajectory toward, is that new Jerusalem. That place that bears a very interesting resemblance to the garden. You know, it's almost like the whole story of God and humanity is about getting us back to where we started. You know, it's almost as if the fairy tale story that we see in Genesis 1 and 2 is really how God designed things to function. And it's almost like the story that God started writing with humanity, the story of endless life and love, the greatest love story that could ever be told. It's almost as if that story, when sin entered the picture, as if we pressed pause on that story. And as if we're living in this awkward tension where we're waiting, we're longing for Jesus to come and press play again. And so... We're living in this world that's fallen, that's going to be restored, that's going to be redeemed. Um, and, you know, we ourselves have been redeemed. You know, we've been adopted as sons and daughters of God. But, you know, as it says, Jesus prayed, he said, I, um, I don't pray that you would take them out of the world, referring to us, the believers, but that you would keep them from the evil one. And so the reality is right now we live between creation and redemption. And that's why it's awkward and it's hard and there's tension sometimes as we seek to find our place in a fallen world. Because right now, even though we see little glimpses of the kingdom breaking in here and there, even though we see glimpses of God showing up on the scene, sometimes in dramatic ways, even the most powerful encounters we have with God, even the most powerful moves of God are just a glimpse of what God is going to do. Like, this is not a depressing message. This is a message of hope. Because God is in the process of restoring all things and he's here to meet us right in the middle of our fear, of our pain, of our cynicism, of our hurt, of all the crap we've accumulated through life. (laughs) He's here to allow us to make that exchange that we can We can choose to leave death behind and choose life again. You know, and we make that choice once when we accept him into our hearts as our savior. But, you know, the gospel wasn't just about us coming once and getting our fill and then going, I'm good to go, you know. Like if I, um, if I go to one of my favorite restaurants, have a really nice meal, um, really fills me up, you know, and I go home and I'm just happy. I just lie down on the couch and it's like, oh man, I just feel so happy and complete in this moment. But you know what happens the next day when I wake up? I'm hungry again. I need to be filled back up. That's why Jesus says we, he invites us to drink of the water of life and keep drinking. I've done a pretty good job of doing right here. I'm almost out of water. (laughs) But he invites us to draw our life from him. To come to him and drink of the water of life and keep drinking. He didn't create this to be a one-time thing where we just get our fill and we go on about our way. But he created us to keep coming back to him and drawing our life from him over and over again no matter how many times a broken and fallen world slams into us, tries to knock us down and discourage us, to 
keep coming back to God. And in the middle of all the stuff that's going on in your life, can you hear the voice of the Father saying, just keep coming back to me. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter how much dirt you've gotten all over yourself along the way, will you keep coming back to me? Because when we keep coming back to God, when we keep drinking of the water of life that he gives, it eventually leads us to the new Jerusalem. It leads us to redemption, as told in Revelation 21 and 22. Um, Revelation 21, 1. It says, John, the Apostle John, he called himself John the Beloved. I think he had a revelation of uh, what God thought about him. He wasn't afraid to say, I'm God's beloved. I'm the one that God loves. And he says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and earth had passed away. It's a whole lot different than God's going to blow up the world and rapture us. But what he's saying is, Someday, the current order of things, the current order where the cards are stacked against us, where life is hard, where the curse of sin and death reigns, and there's injustice and terror and wars and rumors of war and wars and violence and all these things that conflict with the kingdom of God, this old order of things is going to be passed away. There's going to be a new reality, a new reality of God's kingdom. There's going to be redemption making its completion and all things are going to be made new. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Stop right there for a minute. Camp out. And there was no more sea. What does that mean? Does that mean we can't go to Ocean City and enjoy the beach and frolic around in the ocean and have a good time? No, 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 no. That's not what this means. You've got to keep in mind, the Bible was not written to our Western American minds. It was written to the people of uh, the Eastern culture at the time. It was written in Hebrew, the Old Testament, and Greek, the New Testament. And so we've got to look at the Bible through those Hebrew and Greek lenses if we really want to understand what it's saying to us today. And in Greek mythology, the sea represented the source of all evil. The sea was where bad things come from. Go read Moby Dick. The sea was this untamed place where evil reigned. And so when God's saying, the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the new heaven and the new earth is here, and there's no more sea, he's saying there's no more capacity, there's no more potential for evil to reign in the world that God is creating. Verse 2, Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe every away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. The only prerequisite for receiving the life of God is that you have to come thirsty. You have to know that you need him. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Men and women alike, we are sons and daughters of God. But the cowardly, unbelieving... Um, 
um, um, hard word, uh, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Whoa, okay, God, you're being really mean there. No, 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 no. In order to enter into the new way of life, of the, the second heaven and the second earth, it requires that we come to God and drink of his water of life, to come into communion with him. And when we do that, we change. When we see him, we become like him, for we see him as he is. The reason why we're not, if there's any area of our lives right now where we're not like God, it's because we're not capturing, we're not getting a glimpse of a true picture of who he is. The reason why we're not like him is because we don't see him clearly. But when we see him clearly, when we realize the loving father that he is, then all of a sudden we become like him and that changes us. And so if we were liars or sexually immoral or cowards or any of these other things, all of a sudden that stuff just kind of goes away and we become made new. So there's that. Um, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me. That's cool. Saying, come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. Gosh, I need more water. I'm thirsty. Lord, I'm thirsty. And he carried me away in the spirit. <laughs> like, that's something we don't talk about at church today. And he carried me away in the spirit. Like, if I came up here... Today and said, guys, I got carried away in the spirit this week. <laughs> You'd all look at me like I was nuts. It's like there's really cool stuff in the Bible. He carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. And she had a great and high wall with twelve gates, and twelve angels at the gates, and names written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. Here's God restoring all things that were lost. Three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. That's cool. Now the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. The city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. I have no idea what that is. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. I don't know what that means, but I'm sure there's something really deep there if I studied that more. Um, then he measured its wall. Side note, if you don't understand everything in the scriptures, it's okay. It doesn't mean that you're too dumb or that you've got to be a theologian. Just get in the Bible and read it and... You know, the parts that you understand, go bless the Lord, and the parts you don't understand, dig a little bit deeper. Um, read a commentary, preferably a good one that's not full of crap. Just ask the Lord to give you revelation and insight. Huh, we're in revelation. That was a dad joke. Uh, verse 17. Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of an angel. The construction of its wall was of jasper, and the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city <coughs> were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third hardwood, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius. Okay, there's gates that are adorned with stones. I can't pronounce a lot of these. The twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each individual gate was of one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Isn't that amazing that we actually, we don't have to just go to the, the church building, the house of God. Not saying that's the only place where God's presence dwells. But, you know, in the Old Testament, that was something that would have been really significant to the Hebrews. Because back then, God only dwelled in the temple. And now he's dwelling all over the place. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it, and the Lamb was its light. Now that's cool. <coughs> and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles. There's no capacity for evil. Or cause any abomination or a lie. But only those that are written in the Lamb's book of life. Isn't that amazing? There's not going to be any lies anymore. No doubts in our minds that we're loved and accepted by the Father. 
And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And so what if when we get to that place in this new Jerusalem where the tree of life is restored? God's going to take the leaves of that tree and heal the broken and the devastated war-torn nations of this earth with his presence. I'm not trying to create a new theology or doctrine or say this is exactly what God's going to do. I think that's dangerous. I'm just asking the question, what if? Because it says here, the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. That's what's going to heal the nations. Like, <laughs> like I'm sorry, I love America. Um, I'm not overly patriotic, but I, I do. I am proud to be an American, I guess. Um, but really what I'm, what I'm really, what I most identify with is a citizen of the kingdom. And I've come to this place where I realize the gospel is not all about us. Us. The gospel is not all about my uh, nation and that um, God desires all nations to be saved. And uh, there's not one of us that's better than any other. Um, even if we are more advanced or have more freedoms or whatever, that, you know, in the eyes of God, we're kind of all on the same playing field. And, um, you know, when I, when I realized that, it, it changed everything for me. Because, you know, sometimes we think that you know, more weapons and more bombs, more nukes are what's going to bring peace. If that's what's going to heal the nations. And that is the wisdom of this world. That's the wisdom of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which got us into this mess to begin with. But it's the life of God. It's the leaves of the tree that will bring healing to the nations. I hope that doesn't offend you because it's in the Bible. And there shall be no more curse, praise God, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They will see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. <coughs> oh, there will be no more coughing in the New Jerusalem. There shall be no light, no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. That's right. We're going to reign as co-heirs with Christ, as kings and priests before God. Hallelujah. Bless the Lord. That was Revelation 21, 1 through 22, 5. Um, you know, it's interesting in Exodus, um, when God showed Moses uh, his glory, he actually said, Moses, I'm going to show you my glory, but you can't, you can't see my face. Because, you know, when sin entered the picture, we were all defiled. We lost that connection with the Father. And he said, you, you can't see my face or it'll kill you. But I'll tell you what, you're going to be here in the cleft of the rock, and I'm going to pass by, and you're going to see my back. And so Moses did. He had this encounter with God. But he couldn't see his face. And when God said, I'm going to show, he said, God, show me your glory. And the Lord goes, okay. And he showed him his goodness. He didn't show him his wrath. He didn't show him his judgment. Not that those aren't attributes of God. But the one thing that God wanted to show Moses was his goodness. And, you know, when the veil, when Jesus... Um, split the sky and rose from the dead the stone rolled away and all this stuff and the veil was torn in the temple because there was no longer separation between God and man that Jesus destroyed the enmity that was between us and the Father that was placed there at the fall of man when we chose to go our own way you know God didn't put that there because he was mad or because he's pissed off God 
We put that there when we chose to walk away from him and do things our own way. And Jesus is the one who came to remove that, to restore our relationship to the Father. <laughs> and it says, we now with unveiled face behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord and we're being transformed into that same likeness with ever increasing glory from glory to glory paraphrasing from memory um, Revelation 22 4 they shall see his face When all these other heroes of the faith that had amazing encounters with God, the part that was hidden from them, we get to see when we're restored to that perfect relationship and communion with God. And it's coming. God's kingdom is closer than the air we breathe, but right now we're, we're living between creation and redemption. And that's why the subtitle of this book is Finding your place in a fallen world. Because even though this world has gone crazy wrong and it's a mess, and yeah, God's making all things new, but let's be honest, right now it's a mess. We need to find that place where we fit, where we belong, where we know we're loved, though imperfectly, and where we can experience the perfect love of God that heals all of the wounds, that heals all of our scars, that heals all of the pain that we carry and restores us to perfect relationship with the Father. And that's what creation and redemption is about. It's a collection of stories of myself when I set out on this journey to write this book and I just kind of wrote down thoughts I had, experiences I was having, things that God was showing me. As I would talk to friends about what God was doing in their life, I'd record that. It's not just a memoir about my life and my experience, but it's a, musing on the, a collection of musings on the shared experiences of myself and the people around me, the people that I meant along the way to discovering who I was created and redeemed to be. And this is my little glimpse of what I discovered in nine months of who God is. It's something I wanted to share with you. And it's a little bit raw. It's a little bit dark at times. Because that's kind of how life is, you know. But I just want to encourage you on the journey. to create From creation to redemption. To find that place where you fit, where you know you belong. And to receive the wild, extravagant, reckless love of God. May the Lord bless and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you. <laughs> May he lift up his countenance to you and grant you peace. The peace of God be upon you. <laughs>